This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think this sort of focus on something that is traditional so that then you can say or you're either breaking the tradition or you're like a contemporizing tradition. This polarity, I think, is something, a tendency. And I kind of wanted to kind of diminish that. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. Ruman, who was that person we heard at the top of the episode? I am so excited this week because I spoke to the artist Shazia Sikander. Shazia is a visual artist, sort of an artist of all trades. You know, her work is in so many mediums, but I first knew of her paintings. Shazia is the subject of a mid-career retrospective that's in New York now at the Morgan Library and Museum. It's a show that looks back at her student work and a period before 9-11 mostly, Shazia is a really fascinating American artist, and I think it's probably safe to say one of the most prominent American artists of South Asian descent working today, even if that's a reductive way of talking about her, which we'll get to in our chat. Amazing. And I I think we should probably maybe elaborate on something real quick, which is that quite a bit of this conversation is about a particular subgenre of painting called manuscript painting. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and, and how it works? Oh, yes. With some trepidation, you know, for fear of like angry emails from any of the art historians who happen to be in our audience. But I will. We're we're, we're tap dancing about architecture here, right? (laughs) Exactly. I I will take a stab at it, right? I, I had to confront the difficulty in this conversation of speaking to a visual artist in an audio medium, this podcast, right? It's hard to talk about what something looks like. But the term that we use for the vernacular of Shazia's early work, and it's still evident and influential in the art that she makes today, is manuscript painting. You know this work, even if you don't know this bit of language. Think about smallish paintings on paper. They were usually meant to be bound, hence manuscript, even if now we see them mostly as isolated pages framed behind glass. It's a form that developed on the Indian subcontinent and in Persia, I think, sort of simultaneously. I think that there, you know, I I can't tease out all the connections there for you. I think of this work as being sort of highly detailed pictures. They have a kind of narrative to them. You see people in beautifully rendered dress. You see animals. You see the implication of a story, sometimes from myth, sometimes from court life. Like sometimes there's a ruler seated on a throne, 
You know what I'm talking about, right, Isaac? I do, I do. And uh, our listeners, I think, hopefully do as well. You can also always Google it and look up an image if you need to. Uh, Our Plus listeners get a little extra tidbit this week, right? Well, I couldn't turn down the opportunity to talk to Shazia about the particular lot of being a South Asian artist working in the West, of being an artist who's a woman working in a time of feminist reclamation. How do those considerations interact? How can the West comprehend a reality in which art that didn't develop in the West, like how do we, how are we supposed to look at it? Mm-hmm. You know, the story of art that we are told, sometimes I think it ends with Picasso or whoever, but that's not necessarily the full story. Well, that's amazing. And I would not want to miss that. And luckily, I am a Slate Plus subscriber. And so I do not have to miss that. Listeners, if you are not subscribing to Slate Plus, well, what are you waiting for? You'll get this kind of members-only content, as well as zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new podcast, Big Mood, Little Mood. And of course, you will be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. And to sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's listen in on Ruman's conversation with Shazia Sikander. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Shazia Sikandar, welcome to Working. Thank you, Ramon. For many artists, the student years of exploration don't really yield interesting work, right? Like, they can be imperative for your development, but I know many artists, and, you know, I'm not really an artist, but I'll include myself in this, who sort of cringe at their early work. But in your new show at the Morgan Library and Museum here in New York, it's called Extraordinary Realities, there's a selection of your student work, including your thesis project. And I want to talk specifically about that project. It's a painting called The Scroll. I wonder if you could do the annoying task of describing The Scroll for us. Absolutely. I actually started it when I was 19. So um, the work was done over a period of two years. And so it is a example of like a very particular time and space and a, a different mentality, a dedication, which I, which could only be possible because of that time, because of that being that young with that eyesight, with that <laughs> different type of time where you could dedicate at times literally like 14 hours a day. Mm. It's a take on the manuscript painting, which usually are a notebook page size or or larger in some instances, but the nature of detail is very intense. And this work is uh, about five feet in width and maybe like 13 inches in height. But the amount of detail that's in there is, um, is intense. So you have to really be in, 
in front of it and see it with a magnifying glass. So let's talk about miniature painting for a minute. It's a term that is not unproblematic as so many art historical terms can be. It describes a form of painting that would be, I think, recognizable to almost anyone who's ever wandered in an art museum. We just may not know it by that particular language. It developed in the 16th century in on the Indian subcontinent. It depicts scenes from myth, scenes from sacred text. Uh, what was this school of art? How was this viewed by you and your contemporaries when you were growing up as a college student in Pakistan? The nature of this medium is that because of a vast colonial legacy, so much of it was um, dispersed, dismembered, mm-hmm. you know, and sort of the provenance are very complicated, how they often arrive at the storages of Western institutions is is part of that legacy. And there is a, a kind of a level of violence behind all of it. Yeah. And um, so when you say go at the Met, you might see some of it in the their Islamic art department or in the Indian uh, South Asian department. So you can definitely get a sense of what we're talking about. But for me as a visual artist growing up in Pakistan, I was just looking at Xeroxes, black and white Xeroxes often, of like a handful of images. So it wasn't something that, you know, was right around the corner in that one Lahore Art Museum. Right, because it's all in storage at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It is a lot. (laughs) A lot of it is, of course, in storages at the the British Library, at the British Museum, V&A, of course, in India also. So, you know, you can just like, it was impossible to travel to India also growing up in Pakistan. So in that, you know, so there are all these layers of um, access or lack of access. But at the same time, one emerges as sort of a spokesperson or a cultural representative of a language or vernacular that embodies like a very complex history. To go back to the scroll, which was your undergraduate thesis project, it is a manuscript painting. It is horizontal. I'm going to read a little bit of the review from the show from the New York Review of Books by Molly Crabapple. She writes, The scroll is Mughal in form, existentialist and uneasy in content. Sikandar doesn't just copy the grades, but so internalized their grammar that she could use it to portray any room and its tchotchkes in all their particularities, tying the present to tradition, proving the tradition urgently alive. What she's talking about is that this scroll, this painting, depicts what seems to be your own childhood home. So we're seeing a sort of contemporary domestic space. We're seeing sort of furnishings from the 70s. We're seeing suitcases and telephones rendered with the detail and specificity that painters at court in the Mughal Empire would have used to paint a throne or a flower. It occurred to me, this is something that Crabapple notes in her review, so it's not my observation. The manuscript form is sort of like a comic book. You render the walls as cutaways. You sort of like imply domestic spaces, but don't show the whole wall. 
you read the action from left to right. And so the same figure might recur on the same plane, but the viewer understands that it's a single person moving through space and time that makes it sort of like timeless in a strange way. It's this old fashioned form, but the contemporary eye understands what to do with it. Yeah, I think that's a great way of uh, describing it. It is meant to be a day, a lifetime. The protagonist is almost like a ghost. Mm -hmm. It's rendered in this sort of diaphanous uh, form where it becomes very transparent and then often opaque, but it's, it's never situated in that same time and space as, as the rest of the characters. So whether it's the artist observing the environment or whether the protagonist is going back in history and moving forward, you know, in time, like this timelessness mm-hmm. is also because I, I was really, I, I was interested in, in examining even like the painter Bezard, that would be um, 1400s. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of started to bring that in conversation with contemporary architecture in Pakistan. So that's what this unfolding of space is really about, is like really looking at the vernacular, which is already in conversation with um, other people, other artists, other like art. In, the interiority is informed by looking at um, Nair Ali Dada, but also David Hockney. So mm. even if mm-hmm. I was looking at Hockney's yeah. um, photo montages, you know, yeah. the Polaroid ones and yeah. thinking of space, even Bonard, I, I was uh, looking at cinema too. So whether, you know, I, I think at that time, probably there's a lot of Bollywood film, but uh-huh. w- within there, some devices of how, you know, negative, positive uh, spaces unfold as a sort of a kind of a continuous device. Even Satyajit Ray's work, uh-huh. I would imagine, yeah, I think Hitchcock at that time, it's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's so interesting because you're talking about not just situating yourself or your own eye in the historical form, but dragging everyone else along with you, which is, yeah. I think, part of why that work is so, feels so gutsy, you know. And you don't have to answer this question, but I will just say that it it reads to me so much, like you described, there's a sort of central protagonist figure. She's um, in white. She's got sort of a ghostly presence. I think her, I think she's always turned away from the viewer. So we're always looking sort of over her shoulder at these spaces. If you follow the scroll from left to right, as I think my eye naturally does, the story, the narrative concludes with, this figure at the easel, painting herself, who is sitting for her. Um, And it just feels to me like this is a work that is a portrait of the artist as a young woman. And the other thing that I think is so striking about it is that you're using this form that we can date. I mean, you said some of the reference was really the 14th century, which is earlier still than the 16th century. But it doesn't feel ironic. It doesn't feel like a postmodern gag. I don't feel, I mean, yeah. I don't feel any joke there. Yes, absolutely right. I think um, this protagonist is a space that many can inhabit. 
Mm-hmm. And though, you know, for me at that time, it's not necessarily just a self-portrait, but it is exploring this idea of the poltergeist or mm-hmm. <laughs> later mm-hmm. I can think of it as like even, you know, amnesia or cultural amnesia or, yeah. or, or, or erasure yeah. in the making of the paintings. Uh, for the first uh, process is that you create a large amount of this white color. You just you don't just take it out of the gouache tube. I don't know the term, but I don't know if you know safeda. No. That would be like I, I maybe it's a bit of limestone, but it's a very kind of a material that you make, which is white in color, but very porous, uh, very absorbent. So like when you add other pigments into it, it almost gives it translucency and you know, gives the color a lot more punch. So I was thinking, what if I've removed all the color? If I've removed all the color, then what's left is just this body of this white pigment. And then how can I play with that idea? And that's when I was like, oh, there is this character which is painted entirely in this reduced color, uh, the pigment itself, but then it allows then for things to be projected onto it. Mm-hmm. the audience yeah and, and yeah. so i pl- so i think maybe there is that but of course there's so much detail that you can like literally spend you know hours and you can keep returning to the painting and keep discovering it to me the thing that happened when i was thinking about this painting most recently is that i was thinking about this visual form from a time so removed from our own time, four centuries at the very least. When I see those manuscript paintings at the Metropolitan Museum and I see them depict lovers embracing and, you know, they're dressed in a manner that you can't even really discern which, what gender they're meant to be. It's you, that all of the cultural context is really lost to us now. You see people enthroned, you see people holding flowers. It's all beautiful and marvelous, but it it's hard to enter. Yeah. What the scroll does is it shows you exactly that same visual language, but it shows you how it's relevant today. And so then it sort of reminds you that this depiction of amorous lovers from the 15th century, or this depiction of a great battle, or a tiger leaping onto uh, its prey, it makes that stuff feel more alive because it reminds you that that was made by real people and that they felt just as you felt as a girl in the 1980s. You know, it's kind of a remarkable trick. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I think um, it does capture that time and moment in incredible detail. But at the same time, you know, I am drawing connections with this, uh, say, the that insular sort of, opaque world of these manuscripts. And I was thinking like the more I could peruse visually and the more I immersed myself into that space, I was like, how can I get to, to its essence, get to the ethos, get, get to its spirit without basically just appropriating or copying? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that process is what we as artists can you know, we can speak to each other about that because that's inherent in in how creativity functions. It's so abstract and then you give it shape and space mm-hmm. and volume mm-hmm. and 
words or color and, and it comes alive. And, and that is, that act is also embedded in this work. Mm-hmm. In the, literally like working, the rigor of working 14 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. You're not just following, yeah. you know, uh, filling in color. You're really devising ideas. Mm-hmm. It's made uh, from a lot of, yeah, curiosity and questioning and a lot of, you know, change and shift that's happening. Like I, I, I didn't plan the whole thing out and then mm-hmm. went mm-hmm. and spent like a year filling in the color. Mm-hmm. It was evolving. And I knew that, you know, for me, of course, at that time, the stakes were so high. Mm-hmm. There was nobody really doing this. And I knew that I had to bring a lot of people on the other side. We'll be back with more of Ruman's conversation with Shazia Sikander after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey listeners, here I'm working, we like to talk to interesting people about their jobs. But one of our goals for this show is to help our listeners, that's you, with their creative process. Ask us about anything. Where does inspiration come from? How do you get paid? How do you get better at whatever it is that you want to do? You can reach us at workingatslate.com or leave us a message at 304-933-WORK. Oh, also, if you're enjoying this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now let's get back to Ruman's conversation with Shazia Sikander. I want to talk about the sort of the traditional form of the manuscript painting, which is uh, very rigorous and involves the creation of pigment from organic materials. I wonder if that was part of the process of creating that particular work and whether those really traditional techniques of like, I think I read somewhere that you like, you learned to paint with a brush made of squirrel's hair. Like, are those really, really traditional gestures still a part of your practice or you know what was what when I look at the scroll like what am I actually looking at what is that pigment made of no I think important to demystify all of it it's watercolor Uh (laughs) it's dry pigment mixed in with some sort of an adhesive which could be gum arabic and you know this way you can control the transparency and the opacity but it's not like it's not pigments I'm creating from scratch. So I think this sort of um, focus on 
the language or the technique or something that is traditional so that then you can say or you're either breaking the tradition or you're like a contemporizing tradition or you're like embarking you know in a different this polarity I think is something a tendency that tends to happen in our contemporary space and and I kind of wanted to kind of diminish that I also wanted to add that this idea of the of the squirrel head brush <laughs> or uh-huh. or the single head brush right yeah. that also is uh, is impossible you cannot paint with a single head brush <laughs> the the pigment yeah, so. has to be held in a <laughs> right. so what what it means is like it's a brush which has a very thin tip uh-huh. so the tapering of that tip almost comes down to at times one or two hair, right? But the bulk of the ink has to sit in the brush, so it yeah. has to. It, so it's that it's things of that nature that I felt would come along, which almost sort of essentialize, you know, this idea of like, oh, you're working in a particular way of working, and this this must be the exotic. Uh-huh. Yeah, is, is that, that what it is? Off. Yeah, I think you're right. right? I think those details are so, they're so romantic and they allow us to sort of imagine a kind of sacred labor, a kind of like something that's so deeply other. Yeah, that unfortunately. That, yeah. As you're saying, it just doesn't square with reality because it's, too, you're, you and I are having this conversation in 2021 and... It's a a veneration of tradition for no particular reason other than we want to believe that maybe some cultures or some places are still locked into the past. That mentality, it persists from different spaces. Like I've also seen like, you know, um, it being exported Mm -hmm. from Pakistan outward if it seems like a sellable idea. So it's not just necessarily about a fetishization that is happening from the West. Mm -hmm. I think we live in this time space when these things are kind of happening back and forth in many ways. And that idea is what fascinated me as as that 19-year-old when I looked at the performance, you know, like how tradition was performed Mm -hmm. and to whom it was being performed. And I saw like, oh, that is what I'm driven by. Not necessarily, oh, I have to sit and practice an art form that's going to take me two years to make one painting. Yeah. That, was, that, that, that is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my ideas would be flowing so much faster. And it, makes, it would make no sense to, how, how, do you, how do you keep up with ideas? So at that time... That was what needed to be done because the stakes were so different. Like I had to prove through that work that there was a possibility of, mm-hmm. of engaging and a discussion and that the youth was invested. And then it wasn't. So I, I, I think of it in a very, you know, kind of a no romanticization or nostalgia, but to very in a very objective manner. And I think... That's how I always think of art is that there's application as well, that there is a 
a, a kind of a learning of a language. Yeah. And that, that is a very analytical way of like acquiring a, a language and understanding and doing research around it. And then, then just being subservient to this idea of you're embedded in a tradition. And the only way you can step out of that tradition is by coming to the West. Right, that right. you're you're toiling away in some unair conditioned yeah. hovel, <laughs> and then at last you get to come to New York City and you know <laughs> discover that their paint is sold in tubes for the first time or something like that, you know. So I want to talk about just your work more generally because the 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 paintings that you and I have been talking about, this is work that you did a couple of decades ago now, and at this point you have a very different kind of career. I'm curious about what that career is like, just the logistics of it, whether you maintain a studio that's outside of your own home, whether you ever create work at home, whether you work with assistants in your studio, whether those assistants have a kind of hands-on relationship to the finished work that you're producing. Drawing is what connects all my work. So for me, drawing remains like a very thinking tool. And for that, I can... I can work from anywhere. Mm -hmm. I can work from my apartment. I can work from while I'm traveling. I can work from a residency or from my studio. It is one of those uh, facilities, like, you know, like when you're writing, you can write from anywhere. In that sort of facility with like a thinking, notational space where I can um, sketch and put things in, in motion and whether I can elaborate them in different ways that can happen. The drawing can create the new mosaic. The drawing can create the new animation. It can create a new dialogue with with another sort of, uh, even like, even the sculpture. Mm-hmm. So I, I wasn't really making sculpture, but a, a sculpture I made recently, I uh, pulled out the protagonist right out of a sketch I had done in 20 years ago Mm. and in that sketch the idea is literally like a three inch tiny little detailed sketch and making a life scale sculpture in bronze of that moment had a complete different um uh, reception engagement it has opened up a different kind of conversation around my work but in a very cyclical manner like almost like the sculpture allowed like a re-entry and brought in a new generation brought in like the art historians back into the equation brought in my own sort of ability to claim that drawing can foster these uh, relationships with other languages Shazia, you're in your early 50s now. I wonder what it's like for you to look at the product of the younger artist now. I wonder if you can look at that work with any distance or with any clarity. And I wonder if you gain anything from this kind of retrospective, whether this helps you understand what you're going to do next. Yeah, it was a very bittersweet <laughs> experience of 
looking at so much of this work that actually I hadn't seen mm -hmm. in actuality. Some of the paintings after, once I created them and they left my space, I didn't even know where they were. Mm -hmm. I, as a young artist, you know, I wasn't even keeping records, correct records of some of the works. I, we still couldn't locate them because mm -hmm. um, either sometimes you gave away the work or they were sometimes sold without a gallery or without one having a gallery at that time. So I had records, but then, you know, those phone numbers, there was no emails. Like I would, we could f locate many people. Yeah. And, um, and that was also really very rough to understand and to confront that, you know, one, one didn't have that type of guidance to record every aspect yeah. of one's life, right? Yeah. Which happens naturally now because everything is being documented on social media yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. we can't even imagine this so yeah. I feel like I, so I have had to live with that confrontation that so much of that 90s is was like I couldn't access it yeah so there's that and I think also I would like to sort of say is that what tends to happen for many artists um, especially that don't easily fit between the white and the black cultural space in the U.S. And whether we are transnational or whatever, like I, I live in the U.S., I've been making all this work in the U.S., but oftentimes I'm not necessarily part of the American canon. Like, mm. you know, I've been in the Whitney Biennial and I've been in collections in the museums, but I also think that there is a, mentality of a token representation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if a museum has bought one work, fine, then, and if they bought it in the 90s, they probably paid under $1,000 for it, yeah. <laughs> or even yeah. less, right? Yeah. So, so then they're done. They don't, they've checked the box. Yeah. And I, I think that is an important thing to sort of, um, for artists, is to understand that what does that mean? How how do you get a deeper engagement where, you know, how you're evolving as an artist is also of interest to the larger institutional community. And I think that's a conversation that's been unfolding within many diasporic communities is that there needs to be more diverse situations and positions of power where people don't necessarily have to constantly repeat their story again and again right. for every right. every generation, right? Like, so these are, I think some of these things come in play when one is walking through this sort of a retrospective because even when we were developing the wall labels, et cetera, the book that goes hand in hand with this exhibition, um, now the perspective is both a much deeper, richer engagement with not just the work, but with the time that the work was being made in. And um, artists are talking about the work or we're able to pull out anecdotes and, you know, things like wh who I was engaged with, other artists, American artists that I knew that we did projects together and so much of the work was born from those communications and those proximities and 
And then it starts to weave a very different story than the work, how it was usually placed in the 90s was always through the biography right. and, an, and, a, and a very sort of limited lens on the identity. But on a completely separate uh, note, when I walk through the show, and I hope you'll get a chance to see it, is like, I'm like, oh my God, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> How did I do that? Yeah. I don't have that. I do not have that patience. Yeah. Or I'm like, I can't even see it. So I definitely have that. Like I, And I'm like, oh, I wish I could get that work back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it must be, that, that must be a great feeling. I did that. It, it is a great feeling, but it's also like, oh, why does that person have it? <laughs> How can I get that work back? So, well, um, the so, good thing yeah. is that the good thing is that institutions still create these kinds of shows, and we all get to have it for a little bit anyway. We all get to go and see it. Shazia, it was such a joy to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ramon. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ruman, this was such a great interview. I learned so much about her and her work, which I was not super familiar with to begin with. And it did drive home for me, as you noted at the beginning of the episode, how difficult it is to talk about visual art. I mean, you almost sounded regretful when you were asking her to describe her work. What do you think it is about visual art that's particularly difficult to describe with language in a way that, I don't know, a movie isn't or TV show or, or even a book? Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. You know, Isaac, how you might go hear Mozart or something and then be irritated with yourself for the way that your mind wanders? Like you're supposed to be focused on the musicianship or the magic of the notes, but you're just somewhere else altogether mentally. Mm, totally. I think that visual art maybe should function the same way. You know, you can say what a painting looks like. It's not difficult to describe a Jackson Pollock or a Cy Twombly. 
But that description doesn't communicate the effect of looking at that painting. It's sort of the point, but it's also kind of beside the point. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I get that. And I, I have to say, I think you did a great job of trying to solve this problem. I was particularly struck by her complicated relationship to the idea of tradition. You know, no matter what creative discipline you're in, there is a tradition that surrounds it or, or hovers just over it. I mean, that's even true in, you know, PowerPoint presentations or whatever. You know, <laughs> what did you make of her particular approach to tradition? Yes, absolutely. I I think it's a thorny question no matter what you're doing. Can you write a sonnet today and be doing so in embrace of tradition? Sure. Can you write a sonnet and do it with some ironic relationship to Shakespeare? Probably. You know, so irony and pastiche and play, they're so emblematic of the contemporary moment, right? Mm -hmm. You think of Kahinda Wiley toying with the 19th century vernacular to paint contemporary young black men in casual dress. Is that traditional or is it upending tradition? And I think that Shazia's perspective, that her work is traditional rather than a postmodern gag on tradition, is actually really brave. She's not saying, I am a contemporary trickster like Jeff Koons. She's saying, I'm the inheritor of a form that's half a millennium old. That's a really big assertion, and it's actually much more interesting than just being a prankster. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, tradition can mean a lot of things. There's the aesthetic tradition, or, you know, which she obviously is within. There's also a tradition of materials and methods that I think artists of all media can get very precious about, right? I enjoyed when she said, hey, it's important to demystify things. I buy my watercolor pigment, right? Or, you know, like I'm not using a a brush that's a single hair that I, you know, got from the mountaintop or whatever. She's not going to go buy lapis lazuli on the internet and grind it to make the perfect color blue any more than you and I are, I don't know, whittling our own pencils or whatever. You know, it's so funny because I think I read somewhere those very traditional process details about her work, about organic pigment, about that sort of mythical brush with a single hair. And I I think the implication of whatever I was reading was that they were a part of her process, at least in her early work. But that's not the case. And it's funny, actually, because as her answer clarifies, it's really silly to romanticize the form that way. And actually to do so, in Shazia's case, is to sort of exotify her or to other her. Yeah. She made this painting in 1980s Pakistan, you know? she She's not a medieval painter. <laughs> right, totally, totally. Well, are there any material parts of the writing process that you get precious about? Are you Do you have a particular pen you like or, you know, a moleskin of exactly the right dimensions? You know, I know one writer, for example, who started his career writing on a typewriter, and he almost always drafts in courier font as a result to try to, like, connect with his younger self. I mean, I certainly have preferences. There's one particular pen that I love. I can never remember what it's called. Um, I like hard leaded pencils and not those sort of soft leaded pencils. I like a certain kind of notebook. But generally speaking, I'm really opposed to getting too twee about the materials of my work. I think at a certain point, insisting on the purity of your own process becomes a little absurd and is often an excuse from doing your own work. I mean, I've written notes on a novel, on worksheets from my children's school. You know, I often type myself emails in the middle of the night. 
I don't think I have a kind of sanctimonious relationship to the stuff of my work. And I think that actually helps me be productive. Yeah, I have definitely done both of those things. You know, like sometimes when you have an idea, you just need to write it down immediately, no matter what you have on hand, because you might lose it otherwise. You know, we like to think, oh, well, if it's really important, you'll remember it later. That is not always true, at least once you're our advanced age. Uh, But um, I, I always like wanted to be the kind of writer who was like into that stuff but then i realized it would it would actually my personality is such that it would have the same effect as it does on that you predicted which is that actually like i wouldn't write i would just be like oh my yeah. god i don't have my yeah. b23 stroke six fountain pen i can't draft this morning or you know whatever yeah you know the idea that you need a cup of chamomile tea and a sunlit desk and all of that stuff it just becomes a way of excusing yourself from getting to the office and usually what i say when i'm confronted with this is like you know if your job is delivering packages for ups you don't say like well i didn't have my tea this morning the sun isn't shining in quite the right way i'm not in the mood you know the mood matters but you can't let all of these other considerations overwhelm the imperative to actually get to work. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I really appreciated how down to earth Shazia was throughout this interview. I mean, we all know the stereotype of the kind of extremely severe, very pretentious scarf wearing artist who's, you know, quoting theory at you all the time to kind of intimidate you into liking the work. And, and, and she is the, exact opposite of that she really understands her career she understands her place in the ecosystem she's going to talk about money you know and in particular she seems to want to resist what what you both called the romanticization of artistic labor and while i think that's that's absolutely a valuable thing particularly how it intersects with the othering that you were mentioning earlier sometimes i feel like that kind of romanticization can have a little bit of a use like a lot of times we're doing this on spec or for very little money. We don't know. You don't know where it's going to lead when you start a project. I mean, look, we're not curing cancer, but sometimes having a somewhat romantic view of the work we're doing can kind of help you keep going in those dark times, right? That's an interesting question. I mean, first, I would say that I've seen some of Shasia's public speaking, and when she's speaking to audiences of art historians and curators, she is more than capable of pulling out the very serious theory heavy (laughs) art talk. So she was very kind to go easy on me as a sort of general interest person. Um, She knows her audience. It's another down to earth quality. She knew she, she knew her audience, which is like a a novelist who doesn't really know much about what he's talking about. Um, So she was a very generous interlocutor in that regard. The danger in applying this veil of romance to this work that we perceive as other which Shazia's work can so easily be because she is a woman, because she is a brown woman, it ends up feeling reductive. But yes, artistic labor is romantic because we venerate it. And that's actually the one way in which we sort of prize it, right? It's sublime. It's apart from the base reality of capitalism, of daily life. But it's still work like any other, and it's in some important way. But... If you're not careful, that becomes an excuse for, you know, immorality. You know, we sort of excuse the bad acts of geniuses by saying, like, they were geniuses. So it's a kind of a complicated, slippery slope. Yeah, of course. And, and we should say there are plenty of geniuses who don't abuse people. It's, it's, exactly. you, can actually, you can actually be a genius and not be a, you know, Immoral. gigantic yeah. raging <laughs> jerk at the same time. 
you know, as we said, this interview did focus on manuscript painting quite a bit, in part because that's the era of her work that's focused on in the show. But I, I think it is important to underline that, that Shazia works in a variety of forms, uh, up to and including animation. And I was really struck by this thing that she said, that, that she sort of found this one thing that unifies all of her work. On some basic level, it's just drawing. And drawing is something that she can do anywhere. And I thought that's like, uh, there's a really good piece of advice in there, no matter what your field is. But many of us, most of us, I bet, who are in do creative work have like 11 different kinds of things that we do. But if you can find that thing that unifies it and then find a way to do that, no matter where you are, you know, you can always be developing and growing as an artist. I am really struck by the way that Shazia understands her work in all of its forms as fundamentally about her hand. She's always got her hands with her, you know, and she's always able to be engaged in her artistic practice. And in some ways, I I feel the same way. I can always scribble stuff down. Like I said to you just before, like, we're both like scribbling on our kids' homework, right? That's fundamentally what our work is. It's just me scribbling. And when you think of it in those terms, actually, it becomes really hard to over-romanticize it. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in the old days, like, trade magazines would refer to writers as scribblers. Absolutely. So maybe maybe we should bring Spy magazine would have said, yeah. absolutely. Acclaimed scribbler, <laughs> Ruman Alam, today, you know. Well, anyway, we hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you will never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you the Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, access to all the articles on Slate.com without hitting a paywall, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new show Big Mood, Little Mood. But I hope you would like to support the work that we scribblers do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thanks to Shazia Sikander for being our guest this week. Listeners who want to see more of her work, I highly recommend you visit her website, shaziasikander.com, or visit the website of the Morgan Library and Museum. You'll get a really good education in the artist's work. Thanks as well to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for June's conversation with the science fiction author, Charlie Jane Anders. Until then, get back to work. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.